Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome back to The Interpreter Radio Show. This is Bruce Webster with Chris Fredrickson and Martin Tanner. The Interpreter Radio Show is sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation at interpreterfoundation.org, nonprofit organization dedicated to the scriptures, doctrine, and history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Again, you can find our website at interpreterfoundation.org. Okay, uh, we're going to talk about uh, some controversial topics tonight. I want to start by reading one of my favorite quotes out of Saint Speak by Orson Scott Card, Saint Speak, a Mormon Dictionary which I consider like the fifth standard work. Uh, It's a number of terms defined as a dictionary used within a church. He has Journal of Discourses, a mammoth collection of speeches by general authorities in the 19th century containing many doctrines that were never taught by the church. As a safety member, it was once suppressed by the church, for several once bright people had gone mad trying to make all the old-time apostle statements fit within the same gospel. Today, however, there is no fear of ill effects from publishing the Journal of Discourses for only fundamentalists, anti-Mormons, and historians ever read it. Okay. (laughs) With that tee up, over to you, Martin. Yeah, and I wonder which one of those categories that that I fit into. Now, I'm not – Historian. Historian, yes. Well, thank thank you. Definitely historian. Okay. So I I am going to start off here with – a quote that is um, one that I heard years ago by a friend of mine who was – I will politely describe him as a nominal Catholic, wonderful guy uh, from Phoenix, Arizona. And he had observed Latter-day Saints because there are quite a few Latter-day Saints in Arizona, in the Mesa area. And, and he, made this, he made this comment. He he said, and, and the the subject matter, the context doesn't matter too much. But but the comment has stuck with me. He said, "You know, it's Catholic doctrine that the Pope is infallible, and no Catholics believe that. And it's Mormon doctrine that your leaders are fallible." And none of you guys believe that, <laughs> meaning everybody thinks the church leaders are infallible. And he overstated it a little bit, but not too much. There are so many people that if a church leader said it, it must be true. And you have to be careful when you approach a subject like this, lest you appear to be saying that the church leaders are either not inspired or say a whole bunch of things that are wrong or or something along that order, none of which do I believe are true. And I will also preface comments here tonight with, with the statement that I don't believe there are a finer, more inspired group of leaders in any denomination anywhere of any religious order than you would find in in the church amongst the, the lay people, bishops, um, 
branch presidents, and then when you get to general authorities, as the 70s apostles and first presidency prophets, it's it's just prophets and apostles. It's just the most marvelous inspired group of leaders that that you could possibly imagine. And so with that background, I I will now backtrack a little bit and (laughs) and say that uh, Joseph Smith himself said that a prophet is a prophet only when he is speaking as such. And I'm sure you could find hundreds of things that Joseph Smith said that if we, we had them all written down and somebody had ran around with a tape recorder that, that we would find issue with because they were his opinions or ideas. And so now we get to the crux of the, the thing, which is that you could do the same thing with pretty much any other church leader and any other lay member of the church. And so now we jump into our topic for tonight, which is restoration advocacy and how does one who believes in the restored gospel deal with claims that in the early days of the church, it was church doctrine, and Brigham Young taught the Adam-God theory, or the Adam-God doctrine, if you believe it was doctrine. And then a little bit later, we're going to talk about blood atonement, that the church believed in and taught blood atonement in the 19th century. Is that true, and how do we address that? And we're going to start off with the Adam-God idea and say that, in in a nutshell, this is an example of several things. One of them is that, yes, Brigham Young did teach that idea, that somehow Adam was God. And if you look at that in a limited point of view, we would probably all say something similar. If you thought, well, Adam has passed away and he has continued to progress and he has attained the the elevation of a God. There are similar statements to that when you look in the Doctrine and Covenants that, that, that various people who have lived and been faithful have have attained that status. And so if you look at it in that limited sense, Adam as as God or you know as a god, that's a very that's a very logical kind of a claim. And that may very well be at the heart of what Brigham Young said on a number of occasions. And then he probably did some speculating beyond that and exactly how far he went and how far he believed is not really known. One of the things that was mentioned earlier is, is that there were a number of church leaders who tried to look at everything that had been said by Brigham Young about Adam God. And they tried to reconcile it all, and it can't be done. It just it just cannot be done. Which which would be the same for pretty much any topic uh, that I've ever broached and talked about for more than a few years. You, you know, I've I'm sure I've said contradictory different things about many many subjects. So 
that is is not a disparagement about Brigham Young. But what he seems to have been doing is looking at this idea of Adam as being the head of the human race. Adam as being perhaps a deity when he first came here. And there's a question for all of us there. Exactly what status did Adam and Eve have before the fall? They weren't quite the way we we are. They had not fallen. But were they telestial or terrestrial or celestial? That answer we don't have. Brigham Young apparently thought they were something other than than, – terrestrial and so he thought that the fall had had been probably from celestial beings and thus and thus adam and one of his wives as he describes in one of his comments had come to earth and had eaten of course materials and had and had um, become our earthly parents and then they would eventually you know, be perfected after the resurrection. Again, there are a number of problems with Brigham Young's point point of view, and and we'll sort of mention that he talks in a few places or speculates about Adam being the the father of our spirits. He he talks about in a few places Adam being the father of Jesus, and in what sense that might. be. Be, we we really don't know, but the problem with the the whole idea that he was speculating about is that it it really doesn't work well when you try to connect all the dots it's it's impossible and so is the atom God theory something that Brigham Young taught yeah. Was it ever official church doctrine? Absolutely not. You cannot find it ever having been adopted by anything close to a majority of the church leaders or somehow officially sanctioned or voted upon by the church members. It just never happened. This is a bit like some of the other interesting ideas from early church history that were speculations, one of which – I have thoroughly enjoyed, and it's 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 kind of fun, is what happened to the Lost Tribes. Well, I know people who believe that they were on this chunk of ground that left from the Gulf of Mexico, and other people believe that they were in this great big cavern up by the North Pole. And that theory didn't work out too well because there is no land mass up at the North Pole. It's just a bunch of froze, frozen water. And so all these were different ideas that were swirling around, but none of them ever became official church doctrine, and neither did this Adam-God idea. Um, that's, that's sort of the crux of where we go. And I wanted to mention one more thing before I let uh, you know Bruce and, and Chris jump in here with, with whatever they'd like to say. That is, I've had a number of... I would like to say friendly debates, but some of them got a bit heated with with people who were critics of the, of the church on the radio and and uh, once on campus up at the University of Utah. And the gist of the arguments 
goes something like this. You, Martin, and your church believe as official doctrine the Adam-God theory. No, we don't. Oh, yes, you do. Really? And how do you know that? Because Brigham Young said so. And that's the gist of it. It's really fascinating when some critic will tell a member of the church what they believe and what <laughs> church doctrine. I've always been amused at that. And I, I would never presume to tell a Baptist what Baptist doctrine is or a Catholic what Catholic doctrine is, and you know, unless it's from the catechisms, then you're mm-hmm. kind of on safe ground. <laughs> and so it's always been fascinating to me when critics will try to tell you what, what you, you believe. believe. And and that that to me is especially egregious when you're dealing with this Adam God theory, because if you start to assemble all of uh, Brigham Young's comments, you get to some interesting results. Uh, and I, I actually talked about this when, during the break. The, uh, the issue we often run into, uh, both with members of the church and with critics of the church, and ironic with critics of the church, is uh, <clears throat> what I call the lesser theodicy. Theodicy, of course, is the classic theological conundrum that if God is all good and all powerful, how come there's evil in the world? And we as Latter-day Saints are like, oh, yeah, we have an answer for this. We have preexistence and agency and, you know, post, post-evangelical baptism and, you know, all this stuff. So we're very happy with that. But often we as members of the church struggle with a parallel issue, which is if God is all good and all powerful, and he restored the church, and we have prophets at the head of the church, uh, <clears throat> then how could a prophet ever make a mistake? Well, you know, first read the scriptures. Uh, most prophets in the scriptures made mistakes or, or, you know, various choices that may have been less than ideal at the time often had to uh, uh, repent. I mean, you have Nephi, one of the greatest prophets of the Book of Mormon, uh, lamenting over his sins, his anger, uh, his frustration with himself, and so on. Uh, and... As per Martin's comment at the start, uh, we, we proclaim that, you know, our prophets are not invall- infallible, but we tend to act like they are, and people try to hold us to a standard that we don't believe ourselves. Uh, now, sometimes this is very painful when you get into things such as, you know, racial exclusion for the priesthood, where it started off with, you know, blacks being ordained to the priesthood and then Brigham Young because of his issues with uh, racial intermarriage basically reversing that policy and having that in place for, for you know, uh, better than a century after that, uh, it can be painful and awkward and difficult, and this is part of living in an imperfect world with imperfect people, including imperfect leaders. Now, the parallel conundrum is, well, if the prophet's, you know, imperfect, then why should I even bother paying attention to what the prophet says? Uh, well, what you should do is pray and follow the sp- Spirit, but the simple truth is <clears throat> the prophetic message consistently is not on uh, obscure, outdated issues of church doctrine. The prophetic message is coming unto Christ and blessing the lives of others. I uh, just gave a talk, a high council talk, earlier today in Spanish. Uh, the... Uh, Reviewing, I went back and reread all of President Nelson's conference of talks for the last five years since he became prophet. 
and, and identified three major themes that consistently showed up. The first was we need to grow closer to Christ, to become more like Christ, to, to follow in his path. The second is we need to bless all of the children of God in and out of the church, alive or dead, uh, and we need to do it both temporally and spiritually. And the third is the restoration is still active and going on. There are changes that are yet coming, and this is all in preparation for the second coming. That is a prophetic message. Uh, if you go searching to a conference talk that you know President <coughs> uh, Nelson gave as an apostle 30 years ago and say, oh, look, he made this reference here. Therefore, this is church doctrine, and he will be the first to say, no, that's not church doctrine. Uh, in fact, I think, Martin, you were the one who made the comment that, that you know, we really – we have a very interesting approach to doctrine in the church. Uh, really, when you get outside of the articles of faith and the temple recommend questions, uh, it's pretty much – we are still learning. We are still adjusting, uh, and particularly as the church expands in time and space, we are figuring out new and different ways of doing things. Uh, but the point is, is that the saving ordinances and the authority to carry out those ordinances reside in the church. And this is, as the Lord stated in the Doctrine and Covenants, the only true and living church upon the face of the earth. Uh, so. There have uh, <clears throat> issues like this. I mean, I had friends starting giving me anti-Mormon literature back when I was in high school, and which actually led to me, much much like Chris, uh, diving into church history. And I've never been bothered by any of them because I know the church is true. I, I had that witness when I converted, so it's kind of like, oh, well, that's interesting. Never been bothered uh, by by questions such as Adam God theory or blood atonement. Uh, and I have enough of I'm old enough and have enough of perspective to say, yeah, I've I've lived through the ministries of more than half of the prophets of this dispensation. I've seen that the changes and differences in the church in each of them. Uh and I have with all that experience and all my reading, I have a, a profoundly more solid testimony of the reality of the restoration and of the fact that this is the Lord's church than Really, at any time in my life, there's there's nothing that has shaken me here, uh, and it's because of what I know and what I have learned. Which, as I've said here, is is one of the great fallacies. Is oh, the more you learn about the church, more likely you are to leave it. No, you really. No. It's just the opposite. It's it's it's. You can't drink lightly from that spring. You have to drink deeper. Not at all. Is pretty much the the thing, Chris. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, one of my favorite quotes by Desiderius Erasmus, who was one of the great fathers in the Catholic Church, actually. Um, he was once asked about the Pope, and he said, the Pope is a good man, but he is only a man after all. That certainly wasn't consistent with Catholic doctrine, but he was a little bit of a radical, a little gentler about his criticism of the Church than, say, a Martin Luther. So you see the difference between the two men. But, um, you know, when you pair that idea, that notion, and— you know, I would say President Nelson, President Kimball, President Monson, they are good and great and incredible men, but they are men. And I'll just pair that with First Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see through a glass darkly, 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And the reality is, is with the exception of Jesus Christ, everyone on earth sees through a glass darkly. But when we transcend from this life to the next you know, phase of our existence, the clarity of our vision and our understanding will be much sharper. And so individuals make mistakes. They're human. God, I mean, God, there, there would be no one to choose as prophet if it was to try to choose that perfect man on earth because there is no perfect man on earth and there never has been with the exception of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. And then I thought also um, there was a little article that was referenced, but um, it contains a quote here about the whole thing, about the Adam-God theory. And it is, let me pull it up here. Um, Okay, here is um, the status of the Adam-God theory was summed up in, 19, in 1897 in a private letter outlined by President Wilfred Woodruff and written by Apostle Joseph F. Smith. Both had been apostles under Brigham Young. Quote, Brigham Young no doubt expressed his personal opinion or views upon the subject. What he said was not given as revelation or commandment from the Lord. The doctrine was never submitted to the councils of the priesthood, nor to the church for approval or ratification, and was never formally or otherwise accepted by the church. It is therefore in no sense binding upon the church." Brigham Young's bare mention was without indubitable evidence and authority being given of its truth. Only the scripture, the accepted word of God, is the church's standard. That's just beautifully expressed, you know. And, you know, so many of these claims against the church, they want to make everything that everyone has ever said and done something that is, you know, purely doctrine. And this is what, as you know, you so perfectly pointed out, Martin, this is what you guys believe. And it's like, well, actually, that's not true. I ran into that very thing with my daughter-in-law when I was just I was just down in Florida. And we were driving in the car. She hasn't asked me a lot about the church. I think my son doesn't want her to ask a lot of questions. Um, hope you're not listening, Eric. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but she asked me, she was, she was quoting scripture. This is why members of the LDS church must know the New Testament. Because believe me, those Protestants, those they know the New Testament backwards and forth, and they can quote it line and verse. Um, but she was saying, you know, that you know, um, you know, false, you know, uh, Joseph Smith. She said to me, you know, it says about false angels appearing to individuals, and Joseph Smith, you know, started a new church. And I was like. No, that's not what we believe. What we believe was that the Church of Jesus Christ went into apostasy after his and the death of the apostles. And so what Joseph Smith did was that he restored the gospel of Jesus Christ to the earth. He did not start a new church. He simply restored the pure, sublime gospel of Jesus Christ to the earth. We need to know our scriptures as well as they do, but we need to kindly, gently correct. And, you know, we did, we had a really good discussion afterwards, but this same thing, you know, when people make claims, we need to, you know, we need to be in a position where we can say, and, and also, you know, one of the other things is it's a, it's a kind of a non sequitur, isn't it? It's for me, it's like Book of Mormon geography personally. And I know a lot of people spend their life studying. It's like, 
I, I couldn't care less. I have kind of a sense of where I think it is, but it's not going to rock my testimony, and it's certainly not going to lead me to contend with people in the church and to, you know, start feeling other people are my enemies or that they're idiots or fools. It's just something I just let go of because it's not essential, and this is the same kind of a thing for me. Martin. <clears throat> I thought I'd bring up some specifics here so that people know what the parameters are and we're not sort of dancing around the edges. Uh, I've, I've looked over, I believe, every single occurrence by doing searches through the computer searches through the entire um, Journal of Discourses and other statements of and, and addresses that were given by Brigham Young that aren't even in the Journal of Discourses. So I've gone pretty far afield in all of this. And I'm aware of two occasions where Brigham Young taught something that we would now call the the, uh, Adam-God idea or theory. And in those, he said that he thought and and again he well I'll, he didn't really he did not say that this was revelation but he he talked about god the father being the father of our spirits and that was adam and he also taught that adam was the father of jesus and so if you put those together you get sort of uh, combined the statement that brigham young also made which was that God the Father became Adam when he came into mortality. And you can find that in Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, page 50. This was not something that people were afraid of at the time. It was also published on June 18th of 1873 in the Deseret News. So this is a pretty widely disseminated idea. And I found it in at least four different places in the Journal of Discourses. In addition to uh, Volume 1, it's in Volumes 4, 5, 6, 7, and 11 in various places. So it it goes around um, and around and is mentioned by Brigham Young several times. However, that's a very small percentage of all of his of his talks. But having said that, let me mention a few things that Brigham Young did not ever say and that never happened with the Adam-God theory. It was never official doctrine, as, as Chris pointed out. It was never adopted by the church. It was, despite the fact that it was published in the Deseret News and mentioned in several of these sermons, It was never widely taught or received by people. There were some who believed it, but it was only occasionally even mentioned by Brigham Young himself. Brigham Young never claimed that he received it by revelation. There's there's one specific quote that people might say to the contrary of, but I'll mention that in a minute. And there was... There's another point, and that is that critics sometimes say, well, in the 1870s and 80s, 
in nineties, if you didn't believe it, you were excommunicated. There's zero truth to that. None whatsoever. None at all. None at all. None at all. And so one of the things that I w- wanted to mention here is, is that um, there was a very interesting comment, and this is fairly early on. There's a statement about the Adam-God theory in 1860 that was entitled Instructions to the Saints, and it was signed by the First Presidency. And it was published in the Deseret News. So if Brigham Young's talk was in the Deseret News, well, here's the entire First Presidency on, on another occasion. And it stated several conclusions of counsel's head held to consider some doctrinal differences between Apostle Orson Pratt and Brigham Young, and one of those was the Adam-God stuff. And rather than declaring this to be church doctrine, which would have happened if it was, it says, we, this is a quote, it is deemed wisest to let that subject remain without further explanation at present, close quote. In other words, they're saying, we're not taking any official position on any of this. We're going to let Brigham Young and Orson Pratt duke it out between themselves some more, and we're just going to just lie low. Um, here, Here is probably the most direct comment from uh, Brigham Young on the subject. And interestingly enough, it's it's, um, 13 years after that Deseret News publication. And it says, and this is in the Deseret News again, June 18th of 1873, Brigham Young, quote, how much unbelief exists in the minds of Latter-day Saints in regard to one particular doctrine which I revealed to them and which God revealed to me. Now notice that God revealed to me. Namely, that Adam is our father and our God, close quote. Now, people look at that and say, well, he, he said God revealed it to him. Well, I'm not sure that he was saying that he had a revelation on that subject. He's saying, well, maybe it was, um, maybe he was inspired to believe that Adam had become our father. But this does not specifically say that Adam is our father in heaven. Adam is our father is a very different Thing than Adam is our father in heaven. And Adam is God is very different than saying he's our father in heaven. Hey, quick, quick. I, I, yeah. Does it say our father and God or does it say our father and our God? It I thought says it was our father and God. Our father and God. Right. Yes. And that's significantly different than the father and our God because our father and God. I mean, if you threw an A in there, our father and a God, we would say, mm, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And there are a lot of reasons why we would tend, tend to accept this. And one of them is that we all believe that Adam is the father of the human race. Uh, we all believe that as our progenitor, he will preside over the human family. He couldn't do that unless he attained some level of Godhead. 
this was the interpretation of Brigham Young's Adam God teachings that was advocated or clarified by Samuel Richards, clear back as early as 1853. And he was an editor of the Millennial Star, and he published Brigham Young's sermons on this issue and helped clarify them by saying this is the point that he's trying to make. And I I find it fascinating. Uh, So to, to, to sum this up, Here's the equivocation statement by Brigham Young later on in his life that shows that this is not somehow official church doctrine or, I believe, even a revelation in Brigham Young's mind. He thinks the basic idea that Adam uh, and our father, that Adam became God or deity, that, that was revealed to him. But... Beyond that was not, and here's how we know that, quote, whether Adam is the personage that we should consider our heavenly father or not is considerable of a mystery to a good many. I don't care for one moment how that is. In other words, he doesn't know either, (laughs) and it's of no matter whether we are to consider him our God or whether his father or his grandfather or however it turns out. Um, We are of one species, close quote. In other words, we're part of this great human family and exactly how the beginning fits together, Brigham Young himself does not know. As of the time that he made this quote. And and that's a fascinating one to me and one that is always left out when the critics start with the quotes on, on the Adam God. And there there is one other important evidence in all this. Brigham Young made revisions to the Temple Endowment Ceremony. Uh, he would have been, if this were true revelation, if he felt this was doctrine, he could well have modified the endowment to be in line with this, but instead kept Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael, or Adam, as completely distinct personages uh, and was very clear about, you know... Who appear at many times <clears throat> at the same, same time. time. yes. Yeah. And, and, and as, as Michael moves into mortality, is Adam is visited uh, by both Elohim and Jehovah. So... That, to me, is, is probably the most striking thing that whatever Brigham Young f- may have speculated on, he did not consider it doctrinal enough or true enough to, excuse me, in any way revise the Temple Endowment Ceremony, or else we'd have a completely t- different Temple Endowment Ceremony today. Anything else on Adam God, or have we beat this to oh, pieces? I think we beat it to pieces, <laughs> and, and people who—this this is such an old— issue uh again you know it's 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 always fun for them to spring upon uh theologically illiterate yeah. members of the church but it's it's just like it is. i i knew of this issue 40 50 years ago it's like yeah whatever well and and that's true but 
you, you and I, and I'll leave Chris, Chris out of this, um, have been around enough so that we've heard this come around many, many times. But for every new generation, yeah. they hear it for a first time, and it's important to respond to it yep. anew for, for all of them. And I agree. I yeah. fully agree with that. Okay, and we have one more topic, which is blood atonement. Blood atonement, <laughs> which is another. Yeah, this this which, is which which I believe Scott Card and Saint Speak says, which was never taught by the early leaders of the church, particularly Jedediah M. Grant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, in in a nutshell, and and many people will go, "What? What is this blood atonement? What what are we talking? You know." Um, there were comments, and th- this is this is one that circulated um, in the early days after the Saints had moved into the Salt Lake Valley. There were comments by critics, which have been echoed over and over again since then, uh, particularly by my thankfully extremely extremely distant relatives, Gerald and Sandra Tanner. Extremely distant, very, very distant. Um, actually, act, what point are you trying to make here? Yeah, <laughs> what point am I trying to make here? Uh, and and they, they, however, claim to be great, great, great grandson or daughter, or however the thing works, of of uh, of uh, Brigham Young. So that's mm-hmm. kind of an important deal. But the, where where I'm headed with this is that this idea of blood atonement, in a nutshell, from the critic's point of view, is that if you did something the church or Brigham Young didn't like, they would blood atone you, which means they'd bump you off. They'd kill you. Mm-hmm. And these kinds of claims were made in a number of different contexts. They were sensationalized in magazines and movies. In books and movies, in movies. Mm-hmm. and one one of the one of the laughable ones for for me that speaks prayerfully of this is um the sign of the before you know sherlock arthur holmes, conan doyle yep. that's right you know sherlock holmes I, who had great status and stuff and mm-hmm. i first read that and i thought you know I know this is true because this young lady who got kidnapped by the Mormons and they were going to do unspeakable things to her, we know it's true because she got away and she could tell us. And she broke a window in the Salt Lake Temple, jumped out into the Great Salt Lake and swam to safety. So we know this is true. And you look, you read that and you go, I would like her. On nobody, yeah, nobody who ever, Great yeah. Salt Lakes, uh-huh. how many miles away? Yes. Boy, that was. I would um, like her on my track team. Yeah, the world's best dive, you know, for miles. Yeah. Anyway, it was just. It's just hilarious, some of the things that you hear. But I do like her doing the long jump for me. <laughs> that's, that's right. And those are the – when you get right down into them, those are the way all of these claims turn, turn out to be. There is zero, zero, zero evidence that somebody was ever bumped off. But here, again, you, you get into some interesting issues when you deal with the way – we currently see the laws and the way the laws were back in, in the 1800s. When you look at the crux of some of the things that Brigham Young said, you will find that they were da, 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 based on the New Testament. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, talks about the pretty harsh circumstance. Paul's, Paul's basically talking about some horrible thing that he's found in the church in Corinth where um, there's some kind of a sexual relationship between some man and either his mother or his stepmother. We're, we're not told which. And, and so that is, according to Paul, horrible and, and egregious. And so the, the statement that, that Paul makes is somebody who has done something that bad, King James Version, quote, should be delivered, deliver such an one unto Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, close quote. Destruction of the flesh, that is capital punishment. The advocacy there of the Apostle Paul is that for something that's really, really bad, we don't know if he considered murder or other things that, that would be part of that, or maybe it's just this kind of sin, but he thought someone should have to physically atone for a sin personally by being subject to the death penalty. That's the kind of law that we don't find now um, in our current society. At least in this part of the world. In you do find it in other parts of the world. That's right. But, but, it, but in the United States, as a matter of fact, most of the laws against all kind of a sexual nature uh, of, of aberrant behavior have been completely wiped away and anything is is uh, least legally acceptable, certainly not morally. But during the time of Brigham Young and others, if, for example, there was adultery or fornication, especially with a minor, it was legally acceptable for someone to, uh, to, to to be killed, and that was deemed to be self-defense or defense of others. And so the, the relation in time that we have today where if somebody pulls out a gun and they're going to kill you, you can shoot back and kill them, or if somebody is going to do something horrible to another person, you can defend the other person. If it happens immediately in time, that's that's something that would be allowed today, but not if there's a big gap in time. And as a result, some of the things that were advocated by Brigham Young look out of place in today's society and in today's laws, but they weren't in his time and – under existing law. And the final point I want to make, uh, at least before things come back around, is that although Brigham Young made a number of statements that would look like blood atonement, um, there is not a single actual time when it was ever carried out. This would be very similar to the to, to some of the things we find in the Old Testament about if you talk back to your mom and dad, you get stoned. Well, there aren't any known examples of how kids were 
being stoned left and right because they yelled back at their mom or their dad. It just didn't happen. But apparently these kinds of laws, both in uh, uh, in Exodus and other places in the Old Testament and, and in, that were on the books in many places, were deterrent. But we know of no example ever in the state of Utah amongst the Latter-day Saints that this kind of thing ever happened. How about how about after a family home evening where everything goes south, you invite the kids to play dodgeball? <laughs> the the uh, and and I, I'm not a I'm not a Brigham Young historian, but and from what reading I have done, uh, it it seems to indicate that Brigham was often fire and brimstone at the pulpit, and was far more mellow uh, in his actual decisions in real life. That is, he'd, he'd have people come before him for various issues, kind of like, yeah, yeah, we'll do this. You know, it's he, he tended to be far more forgiving and less judgmental, uh, but uh, was was basically, you know, give give <clears throat> fire and brimstone talks to to keep the saints in line. And of course, we had issues. You've you've got in here the Reformation and other things that occur while the saints are out there just trying to to keep the saints in line. To your point, though, and I, I think I mentioned this to you earlier uh, in our one-on-one talks, Martin. Uh, this was a uh, news story actually from last year. I don't know why I ran across this, but uh, there was a uh, uh, man down in South Texas who found his five-year-old daughter being raped, and he beat the attacker to death, and a grand jury refused to indict him. They basically said no, no charge, uh, and that that gets very much to the uh, uh, the point. Uh, the The interesting thing is after he, after he beat the man around the head and next he called nine eleven and said the guy you know please come quickly I think the guy's going to die on me. Uh, so clearly his intent wasn't to kill him. His intent was to get the man off his daughter and uh, uh, incapacitate him so he could do no further harm. But. Uh, the it, there there's also and, and this goes to your point, Martin. There's a lot of presentism in this kind of criticism. Uh, things were quite different. I mean, if you're talking uh, Western U.S. territories, late 1800s, uh, it was common and casual to hang a man for stealing a horse. Mm-hmm. You know, that was just sort of like, yeah, you know, that's it's and there, there wasn't. They, they usually didn't bother with a judge or jury. It's kind of like he, he stole this horse. <laughs> We're, we're going to hang you right here and take the horse back. Uh, not that, again, the saints did that, but my, my point is that the how things were actually carried out among the Latter-day Saints in Western 1800s America was frankly more mild <laughs> and more restrained than most Americans around them. That happened to uh, Clint Eastwood and Hang Him High. That was yeah. a pretty rough yeah. rough movie. Yeah, well, and if you think about it, I mean, you can see the ra- reason and rationale because for an, in our day, horses are basically for, you know, kind of entertainment thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of just let's go. But the, the horse was their transportation, was their way of life, was their income. I mean, it was – and so these were very serious matters. I want to jump back to just the whole overall theme here, and I think there's something really important. Because when we talk about all of this stuff and when we are trying to explain it, the reason we're doing so is because, as we've mentioned, 
people oftentimes are so easily deceived when they do not know the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's two great examples. And Well, there's a great example I want to use to you. And then I'll read a quote here from Sherry Dew. In Alma 30, of course, we have Korahor, one of our best bad guys in the Book of Mormon. And Korahor is there, and he is preaching to the people. And I'm going to start here in verse 25. And he says to the, this is to the Nephites, he's not going to have this as as uh, good success when he goes to the formerly Lamanites. But he says, you say that this people is a guilty... So he's talking to the people, and he's saying, this is your doctrine. Ye say that this people is a guilty and a fallen people because of the transgression of a parent. Behold, I say that a child is not guilty because of its parent, and ye also say that Christ shall come. And I would always ask my classes, I would say, now, what's wrong with what Korahor just said? And you'll notice what Korahor has done is he has mixed truth with falsehood, right? But most of them didn't pick up on it. And I would say, because in verse 25, we do not believe that infants, we don't believe in, you know, that the sin is upon the child. We don't believe that. That's not part of our doctrine. But notice what it says here in verse 18. And thus he did preach unto them, leading away the hearts of many, causing them to lift up their heads in their wickedness. And see, this is the problem. Now, here's Sherry Dew's quote that I just love, and I can't remember which. Um, I can't remember which book it's from, but she says, Often the root cause of the confusion some have about the gospel comes from the combination of a steady diet of the philosophies of the world juxtaposed against a superficial understanding of the gospel. That's in Women in the Priesthood. And this is the problem that we see. This is, you know, when we talked a little bit about how we spend so much time on social media. I I would be shocked if more young people in the church don't spend an inordinately vastly larger amount of time on social media than they do studying the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's those doctrines that are going to save them, that are going to protect them, you know, that are going to inform them so that they have that bigger picture and that deeper understanding. And then what happens is we hear these kinds of things thrown in their face, and they, because they do not understand the doctrine of the church, they're so easily deceived. This, again, is something that was never an official doctrine of the church, uh, never even suggested that it should be, and something that was never carried out in any way, shape, or form. Uh, There's no evidence that anyone was ever put to death, murdered, or otherwise subjected to serious physical punishment that could in any way, shape, or form be called blood atonement because of some indiscretion in in the church. Um, I mean, we do see, let's be honest, we do see apostate groups that have followed up on this. And see, this is the other thing, individuals that that hear about these kinds of claims, and then it resonates with them. They embrace yeah. those kinds of claims, the Lafferty brothers, and the next thing you see is the kind of horrors that are perpetrated against other human beings, right. which is repugnant mm-hmm. to God, repugnant to members of the church who are true disciples of Jesus Christ and repugnant to the Savior himself. Yeah. Um, the Lafferty's were... Not church members when they did what they did, and had they been, they would have been excommunicated, but that couldn't happen because they were already out of the church. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, they were, they were already gone. You 
mentioned earlier about Brigham Young's more quiet personality in in actual life than in his somewhat fiery sermons. If someone would like to get a real sense of Brigham Young's personality, take a look at a fascinating book that has assembled in it his letters to his children. It is absolutely wonderful. And he wrote hundreds of letters to his children, and they are some of the most kind and and fabulous and tender. Tender. Yes, they're they're just they're just spectacular. And no one who was, you know, some sword wielding, (laughs) bomb blasting, you know, crazy person advocating death here and death there would ever be able to write those kinds of kind. And, and tender letters. And, and again, there is absolutely no evidence that anything like this was ever carried out. And, and I will make just one final comment on the blood atonement issue here, and, and that is that the fiery part of Brigham Young's statements, I believe, was intended to deter people from doing any kind of Sexual misconduct, to be very, very blunt. And in in that sense, you can kind of understand why he would make some of the comments that he did. But in um, actual life, he was very kind and soft-spoken. Prophets of the church are prophets of the church because this is their time. Joseph, uh, Joseph Smith and a Brigham Young, radically different personalities, and yet very suited to the tasks that were before them. We, you know, Thomas. Ma- I mean, we could, we could go through every one of these prophets, and we see that. And and again, you need to understand the context of the times that Brigham Young has lived in, what he has lived through, how they literally led the saints out of the United States until the Mexican American War, and then suddenly we are a territory of the United States again, and all of the suffering and persecution, and so. Here's Brigham Young, and he's trying to, at times, retrench and to get these saints to be as faithful as possible. It's not an easy challenge or charge. Well, that just about wraps it up for the Interpreter Radio Show for this evening. We want to thank Martin Tanner, Chris Fredrickson. I sort of showed up here, too. Uh, Tune in again next week for the uh, next batch of excellent uh, hosts that we'll have here. We hope you've enjoyed this, and... uh, Hope you have a good week, and i got about 45 seconds to kill here, so any last comments <laughs> for anyone before the, uh, the, the, the uh, break-in starts? I will. Get to the temple and participate in that new endowment. It, uh, I, I have not, but what, from what I have heard is that it is so beautifully instructional and Christ-centered. That would be the simplest description that I would give, and I'm going next week. And, and schedule ahead of time, because we tried to do that last week, yes. and both local temples were booked up for the rest of the week. Yes, and, and I, <laughs> I, will, I will say one thing, though. We're having a lot of no-shows of people that have appointments, you know, when I work in the temple. And believe me, we've got a lot of people coming, but there's no-shows, and there are spots. Yes. Thank you again. You have a good evening.